Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm chatting with documentary filmmaker Sinead O'Shea about her really wonderful documentary Pray for Our Sinners, which will be in cinemas from the 21st of April. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it was lovely. I, I saw you very briefly at the uh, Catalyst International Film Festival where the, the film screened. Um, it's it's such a wallop of a of a documentary. Like it just smacks you over the face with like rage. Like I was watching it and I cried and then was oh. like I had to I was t- just the, the timing of it was so that I had to take a little break and go back because I was like, I'll get to watch half now and half later. And then like in between that, I was sort of doing that thing where you argue in your head with yourself about all the topics that were raised in it. Like I was actually like, I could feel my rage building. Um, and then like, again, what came back cried. Like it was just, I think something you do so deeply beautifully is take these big huge themes like huge themes about um the way women for this one it's about how women are treated in Irish society and and you make it so personal um and I think that's it like you take these systemic problems and you're you and you're not you find these women who like it's so hard to find people to talk uh about about this subject matter, which is terrible, but it's it's th- like you even discuss this in the film, which is so beautiful, and you get them to 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 chat so honestly and openly. There's so much empathy for them, but also I think what I really love about the film is how you're in it, um, and how your character is there, and how you relate to the subject, the subjects, and you're not like this disembodied. Um, like your voice is so strong and I, I really enjoyed that as well because I kind of feel like hey it's more authentic like it is you are the person talking to that and and you do see that rapport there um, and how it affects you as as a as a person and how this big systemic problem affects like the 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 whole nation, then down to the town of Navan, and then down to um, these women, and then right down to you as a documentary maker who, um, you know, who's who's kind of recording this, and it's and that rage is there, and and I think it's just so it's it's just such a, it's just such a powerful film, beautifully put together, and there's so much oomph to it. Um, so thank you uh, to oh. to view. <laughs> I find that quite stressful to listen to. I was just like, oh no, <laughs> something bad's going to happen. <laughs> Thank you. They're compliments. I, I know. I just think like, is just my fundamental Catholicism. I just go like, please stop. This is so <laughs> And it was so long because I loved it so much. God, it's like little needles of joy. It was stop. like embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really stressful but thank you That's very kind of you um but I don't know what to say but thank yeah. you <laughs> so it is it's infecting like it's not just something that you kind of catch and I do you know what I think as well and I'm I'm, I'm totally going to kind of like go through the whole thing and nitpick everything and, and pick your brain about not nitpick pick your brain about about how you did certain things but what I think is one of the biggest testimonies um to how Ireland has changed is that this has gotten state funding. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's true. It it was made under Screen Ireland's micro budget scheme. So it that's a scheme where you're given a hundred thousand euros to make a film, which is definitely not enough money to make a feature film. But what they do, what what happens is that you just get given that money, so you don't have to go out fundraising abroad or do co-productions or something. And so in this case, because you know, some of the characters were quite old and it was in the middle of COVID. I just thought, now I have to do this right now. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But it, yeah, it did cross my mind how remarkable this is. And, you know, you have to fill out an awful lot of forms to get the money. But, um, you know, they were, you know, one of the questions is like, why is this an Irish production? And, you know, you're able to say, well, this is a story, this is, a story of you know how church and state worked together and how oppressed people became and how people stood up and resisted again and you know formed resistance and i just was it is an amazing thing that screen Ireland exists now and that there's funding for for this kind of work because a big part of the storyline is the fact that you know the people who were resisting did reach out for help to the media in Ireland and you know they went to the Irish press and the Irish Times and RT you know all the big names and they couldn't get help anywhere and so yeah I think that's a great point we haven't really mentioned that yet you know in all that we've been discussing around the film we are really lucky to have screen Ireland. I mean like you know no nobody's perfect but it is marvelous that there's a body dedicated to native filmmaking in this way and yet that isn't that isn't afraid to tackle subject matter that is not generous towards the irish state and that's i think not generous and that's not necessarily going to be commercial um you know we weren't thinking this could be anything other than a gathering of testimonies um and then slowly the project kind of snowballed and escalated and you know found you know find its way into big festivals abroad but you know the initial instinct was this is a really good story it's unusual it's showing something positive it's showing a resistance let's try to capture these testimonies while we can you know it really is amazing that there was funding available for that um yeah it's funny because a few filmmakers have come to me and said would you recommend the micro budget scheme and i'm just kind of going oh i don't know you know it's it's so tricky that yeah. amount of money it's I, I don't know if I would but for this project in this instance um you know it was just an, an absolute gift so tell me how like again obviously it's you're so close to the the subject matter um and I mean it's just something that's so visceral I think any any woman in particularly that I know there's not one woman who hasn't even in my generation who hasn't sort of still felt the ripples of the themes that are experienced in this, um, even through like the present uh, healthcare system, um, I'm I I had a child in the past two years, and you can feel the repercut, the unconsciousness of the that you are like a machine that is designed to birth children in in the state, and you don't fully have your own autonomy. And yes, we have changed the law quite recently, but it's not in full aspect. And when you go through the process, you do feel it. You see that repercussions there. And I'm and I'm like, so it's it's something I think we feel so viscerally. So I, I completely understand you 
being drawn to it as a documentary maker, but sort of why this aspect and why now as well? Yeah, um, it's funny. I had I had a baby recently too, and you just to agree with what you say. Like I had hyperemesis, which is very severe morning sickness, and I had that the whole way through, you know, until the baby was born, and that the there's a medication you can get that's free everywhere else, but in Ireland you have to pay for it. I remember just thinking, like, why? Why am I having to pay a fortune, you know, for this? And, you know, you're absolutely right. There's lots of aspects to maternal care that's uh, very weighed down by past practices and past ideologies, I think, as well. Um, but anyway, uh, for this film, uh, I just finished making my first feature, um, A Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot. <laughs> it's so funny because I'm always saying, which is, you know, it's really like the title. <laughs> you know, it's such a literal title. And um, I was talking to an old school friend. I mean, it's, I say this in the film and it really is what happened. I was, I was speaking to an old school friend about work she had actually been doing to get a bench erected in Navin in honor of Dr. Paddy Randalls, who had just passed away. So he was this extraordinary doctor. He did so much for the people of Navin, for women and children in particular. And she said he was such a great character. And, you know, she he was particularly strong when it came to corporal punishment. And she told me bits and pieces out of the story that ended up in the film. But so I, I thought, well, that is amazing. And he sounds like a wonderful man. But... I wondered if there was enough in that for a whole feature documentary. Um, you know, it's a real challenge, the feature documentary for us, format. You know, you can make half an hour quite easily about anything, really, I think. But to keep people for kind of 80 minutes, you, you need a few different moving parts. Um, so I met uh, Dr. Mary Randalls, who is Dr. Paddy's widow. And, you know, she is even more charismatic and vivacious in real life than she is on screen. And she was a delight. And she was very keen for me to make film all about Paddy. And so she spoke to me all about his work, do a corporate punishment. And, you know, he'd done lots of work in lots of sectors on Montessori schools, like on bringing, um, you know, on changing segregated education in Northern Ireland. There were so many things she was trying to interest me in about him. But then the mother and baby home report came out and she said to me, well, you know, it's such I just can't believe it. She was really upset about it. She goes, I think of all those women that we used to hide here, all those young girls. <laughs> I was like, what young women? And then it, she very casually, after two years, three years maybe, of knowing her, reveals that, you know, they had women out of mother baby homes by hiding, by hiding them in their house, that they had rescued women from mother baby homes, that they'd rescued babies who'd been kidnapped from their mothers, that had been this huge part of their lives but kind of slightly typically of Mary she hadn't really thought this was worth mentioning which is so in keeping with what a modest and astonishing person she is uh, she genuinely felt like this was just a it's so funny because she's such a contradiction she genuinely feels it's both a normal thing to do and a common sense thing to do but also uh, was kind of aware that not anyone, nobody else was doing this. So, you know, it's, she's always such a funny contradiction. Um, and then, you know, it came tumbling out further that, you know, she'd done all this work to do with contraception and that she had opened up the first women's health clinic and the first um, family planning clinic outside of Dublin. But she was just so 
so modest and reserved. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at this point if I went back to her and she revealed something else extraordinary that she just hadn't bothered to mention to me. But anyway, I kind of felt, okay, now, now we have more potential stories. And now if we could find some of the women that she encountered, we can build a wonderful film that kind of shows this whole resistance. I hope I'm not being long with it by the way. <laughs> no, like two of those women's stories, I was just like about the babies. It just oh, got you on such a visceral level. And it's just they didn't, the church didn't expect you to, to put up a fight. And if they yeah. didn't have somebody fighting her corner, they were like, all right, these are easy marks. These are babies we can just take. Yeah. Like that if they didn't have someone with that gravitas fighting their corner, do you know, like it's it's just... It, it shows the importance of activism and that like that selfless fight and using power to to support somebody and, and the difference. And I think you say that yourself in your voiceover, like it's it's the people that that didn't have a voice, that were vulnerable, that were sort of didn't have that network, were the people yeah. that were preyed on the most, um, which is which like but it's so gut-wrenching when you see like how traumatized these women. I know it's it's a funny kind of conclusion because you know it's just it's not a Hollywood film so you know they are rescued and they're you know and there are happy outcomes but they're completely traumatized by what happened to them so you know it kind of is funny it's funny because you know this this film has played in a lot of US festivals and I I felt I was presenting a quite positive film as enraging and upsetting as it is I was like but these are people who got away and you know, there was an actual resistance and there are very few stories like this at home, but all the audiences there were just kind of devastated, I suppose, by everything they saw. Whereas I think here in Ireland, it's playing in a, in a slightly different way, in a way more closer to what I envisaged, which is that there is the trauma and the triumph simultaneously. And I think people here are able to accept that you can have both at the same time. And sense. we know we know all the bad stories, like we're all very, very well like I, I think I was yeah. I was chatting to someone who was European and, you know, they kind of have the vague, oh, I know there was a few scandals and I'm like, oh, but you don't you don't know. No. And then you just go through and I was like, this is just the highlight reel. And they're like, what? And in living memory, like so much has happened in living memory. And I think your film just highlights it. And what I love about it is it's like even the text is angry even though it's quite like like and, and I'm like yeah it's quite like factual and and peered back but I'm like but I can feel that rage when I'm watching it and I'm like yeah because I have that rage yeah no I I kind of I wondered you know is that overkill to put that text at the end but I was just like I I have them all here now so I might as well just say because the rest but it's, of them... but it's very it's very factual though it's not going like and they're disgusting you know adding that thing there but I'm like I can you're just putting up mostly facts and mostly a description of what happened and peered back with very little adjectives and stuff. But it's just I can feel it like and I'm and and it, it I think it's the lived experience for so many of us now. Yeah, no, I, I think so, too. I mean, like Norman, you know, he's this, you know, he's gone through such hell, you know, as a nine year old. But he has a teenage daughter now, you know, so it's not that far from us, any of this. Or, you know, the one of the babies who was rescued in the film, you know, she came to our first Irish screening at the Dublin Film Festival. And, you know, she's she's not old. <laughs> she, you know, she's she seems really young to me. And 
you know, it, it's just so present, I think, for everyone. And I, and I guess that was part of the motivation for emphasizing in the text and in the voiceover, you know, the church does control 90% of the primary and secondary schools. It's very present. They control a lot of the healthcare still. And this isn't all about the church being malevolent. This is about the state allowing them to have that control and, and saying, no, it's, it's more convenient basically for us to do it that way. And we don't have the resources to manage it that way. And they, it's just always been this kind of, yeah, it's collaboration, I guess, collusion really between church home and rule state. to Rome rule. Yeah. It's just, it's really bad for the people. Uh, it's, it's really dreadful. And then, you know, you've got thousands of people unaccounted for, you know, whose adoption files, you know, aren't really traceable. There's, we just don't know how many bodies are buried on these mother and baby home sites because they still haven't been properly excavated. So it's very, very present. You know, I, I have friends who are, you know, younger than me, you know, they're like in their early thirties and they, they were adopted and they don't know where they were for several months because the record keeping is so bad. Uh, it's, it's very, very present. I, I just feel like there's, again, yeah, that's a big emphasis in the film. And that's, I suppose we are conscious of, you know, there's, there have been films on this subject matter before, but I suppose what we're trying to say, you know, that it, it's different for a few reasons. One, we're emphasizing how present this is. And then secondly, we're emphasizing I suppose, yeah, that more positive aspect that there was a resistance. Um, like not to keep going on, but I, I actually am really, I'm quite touched by your point about, you know, these people being alone, but then having this defender who had gravitas. And because it's interesting, you know, when you say that the, the church hadn't anticipated these women standing up to them. And I, I just think actually one slight tragedy of, what happened is that I don't think enough people did try to stand up sometimes. I think they were so convinced they were doomed to failure that they, they didn't even try sometimes. And I think that's a bit, it's quite devastating. Um, because essentially the church and, and I suppose the state, they were just bullies, you know, they, and I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm just kind of going off on a tangent here, but sometimes with certain kinds of bullies, all you need to do is just push back a bit and just just make them question what they're doing a bit. Yeah. On the other hand, the system in Ireland, I mean, it was so difficult because, you know, as I say at the start of the film, if you, if you didn't have someone to back you, you were nobody. Like, you know, there was no internet, there wasn't really travel forward and back, there weren't that many jobs. So you needed a set of alliances to be able to maintain yourself within Ireland. And there's, and I think it's probably a hangover from our post-colonial, um, our post-colonial setup as well, our mentality where like collectively, you know, you would get the, oh, well, we'd be a bit cheeky to authority, but we really submissive for so I long. I don't think we're cheeky to authority too. I, I just find it's a complete myth that yeah. Irish people are always saying about themselves and the rest of the world say it about us and we kind of giggle along and we're not. We're so totally deferential. It drives me completely bonkers. But then, I mean, I've loads of English friends who say, no, no, English people are even more hierarchical and even more obsessed with authority. So I don't know. But I always think anyway, it's pointless comparing ourselves to England. To another. Well, it's not even that. It's just that England is such a shit show. So like, who cares if we're not as dysfunctional as Brexit land? Like, who cares? That's a really small triumph. 
So anyway, I, I just don't think we are cheeky at all. She, yeah, no, but it's it's in your film. And this is this is exactly how you've you've set it up. Like the hierarchical nature is, is how society was set up so that, you know, people on the ground level, if they or like, you know, one rung above, if they, you know, their voices um were are elevated ever so slightly people on the ground level are not and really it's it's only in that and I thought it was so interesting that it was the UK that spoke out and so many times as well you know about even about the rugby trial about like you'd go to the the British newspaper to cover things in yeah. that slightly more honest way and that hierarchical thing is still everywhere. It's in the healthcare system. It's in it's in our policing. It's in our media in the sense where we have libel laws now that, you know, shut people out from speaking. Yeah, I no, mean, we have particularly strict defamation laws in Ireland. And actually, you know, it's another reason why I was so glad to be able to make this film through Screen Ireland and not through RTE where, you know, there's, there's such an anxiety around the defamation laws. But you know, you know, there were so many changes we had to make to this film to prevent any potential um, issues from arising. And so, you know, they were all they were all made. But it is really, really tricky, I think, to work within this culture as a journalist or as a filmmaker, anyone who's dealing in factual matter. So it it does just encourage, you know, powerful people to continue being powerful and protected them for so long as well and I think people are surprised now that they're you know that I think people are being prosecuted like I'm, I'm like it's just I'm gonna only talk about it in the context of this film because I will just talk to you for hours about this because it's such a like it's such a visceral and difficult thing but it's a hangover of all the systems that you investigate and I think it's one of those things. And it, you you did speak about this and it's so beautifully put because I think everything you gave an example of, you showed the, the, the personal human consequence and you have these women, you get them to speak so openly. And I think that's sort of one of the tricks that the that the church kept us quiet even now with shame like shame is such a part of our society it just keeps these women quiet i i was on a bus and i was chatting to a lady who was i'd say in her 80s and we were just giving out about something as as you and i are doing now and then she just said oh i was actually in that institution from the age of 15 until the age until i was in my 30s and just she didn't want to talk about it. She just said it. There was another woman there who was like, ah, fuck them all. And, you know, but she was clearly religious and that pain. And, and you could see it, how it washed over her body and, and how that trauma is still just just beneath. You scratch a tiny bit and it's just beneath that surface. And what I think you just did so beautifully is. Created the space for that pain to be there, which allows other people to feel that pain which is which is a voice for the voiceless in so many ways but i just how did you how did you sort of build the rapport enough to do that because it must have been very difficult uh no i i actually really can't take credit for that i think um a lot of it was to do with the fact that those women loved mary so much so mary really wanted the film to be made and so mary had put me in touch with these women. And so, you know, once you have Mary to vouch for you, you know, that makes a huge difference. So I think that really helped because, you know, with Betty, 
I really only had uh, two afternoons with her. Um, so I had the, I did the first interview with her where she spoke about the home. And then the second time I met her, we spoke about her experience of giving birth, which was utterly harrowing. It's like really shocking. Because it's such but a horrific experience. It's, it's unbelievable. But, but you can tell, like, you can tell the pain. I suppose what I really like about somebody seeing somebody like Betty tell that story is that she really uses so few words and you know I I suppose generally what I like about this film or rather the people in the film sorry it's actually a modest <laughs> but it is a beautiful film <laughs> no no but it contradicts what I'm about to say which is that I love how modest they all are like they're so quiet they've gone through these extraordinary things They've experienced such pain and triumph, I guess, too. And they they express it all so succinctly and so gently and so quietly. And I love them so much for it. And, you know, someone like Betty, you know, I just think today, obviously, if anyone experienced the equivalent, <laughs> I mean, that's actually fair enough. Of course, you would you would express that as much as you could. But I, I sometimes think today that the level of rubbish basically that I read on social media about you know what people think about anything you know it's all so overstated and bombastic and grandiose and everything is just so big and yet the actual things which have happened to these people are so singular and yet they they are so gently spoken about it I, I it really touches me I don't think I've described it very well but I, I really love and admire them for how they express themselves. I just think it's so profound. I just, I can't say enough how much I admire that kind of modesty. And was it cathartic? Like, what has the response been on the ground now? Because it's, you know, it's screened in quite a few places. Yeah, it's been a kind of mixture. I, You know, as I was saying, so it, it screened first in Toronto and, um, did a very nice response there. I mean, it's it's funny because you it's always quite hard to evaluate what is having a successful premiere in Toronto because you know there are like Harry Styles and Taylor Swift on a red carpet close by, and so you're you're very much not of that ilk. <laughs> but um, you know, we had a lovely crowd there, and um, they there were quite a few people um of Native American heritage who had experienced some of the schools that the Catholics had controlled in Canada. So they spoke with me afterwards. So it was very interesting to hear that perspective. And then there were quite a few Irish Americans or Irish Canadians in the audience too. Um, and then similarly in the US, we played quite a few festivals there. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of surreal to say any of these things because it just, this wouldn't have been the trajectory that was expected for this film really at all. You know, it was seen as a very small film. Um, and, and now we have our Irish cinema release. Um, so we had the Dublin Film Festival actually, sorry, first. And that was brilliant. You know, that was a homecoming for the film and the participants, some of them got to see it for the first time. And I, I'd been really anxious about them seeing it. I had wanted them to see it with kind of the warmest audience possible. 
and you know it was really it was beautiful it was really great you know they had like huge standing ovations and you know people burst into applause at one point when Mary was talking about mother and baby hugs you know it was just beautiful Betty was there with her daughter they're saying Ethna was there you know they kind of sobbed and they laughed and everyone hugged them afterwards so you know that was couldn't really be bettered I think as an experience um and then next we're going to very next screening is in Navin um and then London and then we have our our um Dublin Ireland release release on the 21st of yeah, April exactly. are you nervous about the Navin yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be the I, most like you could be like, oh, I'm going to Toronto and go to London. Oh, like, I think I'd be the most. No, I always said that, but I'll get my comeuppance. <laughs> um, I am. I mean, I guess there's a few reasons for it. Like, I it is as I say in the film. I don't want to get any of my family in trouble. You know, my sister is a teacher actually in the school where Norman used to go, even though it's changed hands now. Um. And my other sister is an occupational therapist there. My parents live there. So I really, you know, you just, you know how these, you know how all places in Ireland work. It's, and it's the same in Dublin. You know, it's just, you don't, you just don't want to upset anybody. Um, but then that's kind of the whole problem sometimes that you just, we avoid saying things because we don't want to upset anybody. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how it'll go. I mean, I don't think there's going to be anything other than absolute love and compassion for the participants in the film. Uh, one of the central characters in the film is the former parish priest, Father Farrell. So I wonder how that will go because... Will there be a few diehard things? But you yeah. do give a balanced view of him. Like, Yeah, he's a very interesting character, I think. He's very complex. And I felt he was just such an interesting character to have in a film like this because he really does represent the church in its entirety in a way. You know, he he does terrible things, but he also does wonderful things for the town. And he is a, he is very nuanced and you can see why people loved him. And I completely, yeah, I really understand why people loved him. Yeah. And I do think that like I, I would have remembered like that kind of complexity and that. Like it, it's kind of in us all like I I, I think I would have yeah. I would have I when I was younger, I said, oh, I'd always raise my kids, like, obviously before Carrie babies, before the Murphy report, before all these things or before I was kind of fully aware of the extent. But you would have gone, oh, like, you know, I mean, there are elements of it that are so nice and it's nice to have that level of spirituality and community nurtured and nothing has stepped in. And that's I do think a, a great disservice to society like there is something missing and like like the supports for grieving or you know that kind of spiritual guidance like that isn't there yeah that's so well said I I just completely agree and I think you when you watch the film through it's there's definitely a great appreciation for Catholicism there and for what it did for the community and I feel it was really a privilege for me in some ways to grow up within that tradition there was an awful lot of beauty to it as well. So, yeah, I agree there, you know, there's comfort offered by Catholicism. There are rituals associated with it, which we've struggled to replace. And it is a very nuanced matter. I can I can really see why people love the religion itself still. I, I completely understand that. 
Yeah. And it is, it's just the systems and, and how they integrated with the state. If it was sort of like, I, and I even remember there being such generosity, like I would have, you know, been in school in the nineties and early two thousands. And it it was a different religion, you know, like it wasn't fire and brimstone. It was forgiveness and Jesus and baby Jesus, Do you know, like it was, mm-hmm. it wasn't that sort of, and it was kind of shifting. And, and if it had kind of gone in that trajectory and I often think as well, like if there was any, this is something that you talk about, but if there was accountability and an apology and acknowledgement and, you know, like if, if it, you know, all those things, but I think there never was. And I think that's why it's so unforgivable where, you know, the state is, I mean, the state is responsible at the end of the day, we gave all those powers away, but like all the victims and how they're not being compensated. Yeah, I mean, I think the re- redress scheme is such a scandal. It's such a disgrace. And that's happening right now. I mean, it's just so devastating. And I think everyone just feels paralyzed and very upset. I mean, just to briefly discuss it, you know, under the terms of the redress scheme for the mother and baby homes, um, survivors, um, people like Betty, who endured horrors while there, but was there for a relatively short amount of time she's entitled to the smallest amount of compensation, which is 5,000 euros. So that is, it's almost insulting. That's almost, that's almost like an insulting to say that the trauma that she's endured her whole life and that has impacted her whole family and that she almost had her child stolen from her. And that's worth, like that wouldn't even cover the therapy, (laughs) entry level therapy. Yeah. Um. You know, it's so dreadful. And and actually, again, speaking of hierarchy, you know, the survivors, they said, we don't want a scheme that's built on a kind of hierarchy of time spent in these institutions. And actually, the government did exactly what they didn't want. And so that's what they've been left with. And it's, you know, it's really, it's just really upsetting and sad for all the survivors. They've been encouraged to kind of divide amongst themselves, you know, because some people are entitled to like larger part, larger sums of money. And it shouldn't be about, it just shouldn't have been divided up in those terms. And people are really rightly upset. And that's happening right now. So, um, so yeah, it's not just the church that's the problem. <laughs> but I, I do think that's something like your film deals with the humanity of all this and having it being able to view and, and kind of sharing it internationally, I think is so important because like on on home ground, it gives people a space to grieve. Do you know? I'd be yeah. very interested to see what the response will be of people, you know, catching it in the cinema. Yeah, me too. I wonder. Like it, I must say. I mean, I'm a bit worried about the title. I think the title's a little bit off-putting for people. The title was slightly forced upon us. I just know that for Irish people, they're a bit like, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but that would be my instinct. So. I'm just really hoping there's enough good word of mouth for that kind of that sensibility to. I mean, to... I could talk, I could literally talk to you about the content for hours, but I have to go into the process because otherwise I use up all my time because it's so, and the pacing is just beautiful of these, um, like you you do an incredible job of getting exposition and history in, um, then like explain, like you could, you could not know anything about Ireland and watch this film. But then you have these beautiful, quiet moments with um, just an array of different subjects. And then kind of y- you talk as well about, you know, the 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 
Navin as a space and a society in that time. And I'm just wondering, did this change? So you were originally documenting testimony. How did this or did this change like from the pitch or was this in found in the edit? It's interesting, actually. Um, it's actually very close to pitch that I um, sent to Screen Ireland. So I was always saying to them, I'm going to build it around some testimonies um, and it'll also reflect my own experiences of growing up in this place. And then once we started, I I just thought, actually, I I'm, I really don't want to start talking too much about myself in this. Um, and the interviews I had done, they were just so brilliant. And so I just, I'm not saying my interview was brilliant, I'm saying the characters were so brilliant. And so I, um, I was like, okay, this is actually quite a simple structure now because they're all retrospective so I was like all you need to do is just tell their stories chronologically that's all you need um because they're so powerful and the stories the content is so powerful the way they're told is so powerful so that was what I went with and um I made a rough cut basically using that structure and all along um I'd I, I'd asked an old friend who's a filmmaker herself, Maya Darrington. I had asked her if she'd co-produce with me. And so really what I wanted to do was like look at my cuts and give back notes because she's such a good filmmaker. So she watched, you know, an early rough cut and she was like, I mean, they're great, but you're, you are going to have to talk about yourself and put yourself in and like talk about Navin and give us some context around Navin. And I just thought, no, like that would that wouldn't work at all. I won't do that. And so then I was further down the line. I had what I thought was like quite a decent rough up based on the characters. And then I sent it to a man called Andre Singer, who is um he's like a very he's a very very experienced documentary person. He exact produced my first film and he He's, but he's more usually a producer for people like Bernard Herzog, the exec produced jo- Joshua Oppenheimer's, um, films. So he's, uh, he's incredibly experienced. And so he watched my rough cut and he was really scathing. He was like, you know, these are great. These people are great, but you, you have to put yourself in it. But it's just, it makes no sense. You need to put that context of you and the town and what the town was and where you're from. And I was like, oh God, so I had to go back to my <laughs> You were right. You were right months ago. <laughs> and I completely overlooked what you meant. So I was really worried that because I thought it was really egotistical and it's kind of whinging at both of us going, I don't, I don't really want to do an author doc. And I just I think I've always like been in love with the idea of making this beautiful observational documentary, which this wouldn't have been either. But anyway, I just didn't massively want my voice in it. Anyway, in the end, um, I did. Um, but I suppose it's, I've gone for a fairly sparse voiceover. Um, and yeah, I just see it as a way to facilitate the stories of the others and to, you know, to explain what Navin is or to explain what it was to grow up Catholic in the 1980s and the 1990s or, you know, what kind of government you had or, what the teaching of Catholicism was. So it's it's really just an information providing exercise. I really did not want to talk that much about how I was feeling or like how I felt when I met Mary, stuff like that. Um so I, I think I think it kind of works 
you know, I'm quite experienced at documentary edits. Like they're my favorite bit of documentary making. I think most people documentary probably feel the same. It's it's very creative, the editing process. Um and so yeah, my my other big problem with the edit was that we just really had no money and we couldn't really we didn't really have any editors for a long time. So I had to work with um a brilliant person called Endo O'Dowd who worked with me on my first film also. But we had to like we kind of edited in like five weeks but spread over nine months. We only had enough budget to do it that way. And so it's that's a very difficult way to work. Um and- is it but, is it easier for fresh eyes if you're doing it with that much time? Yeah, I mean, there's an argument that creatively it's a good way to do it because you might I would get like two days of Enda and his you know Enda was going to his own very many things like he COVID car crash you know where to live but it was so terrible so hard to get time with him and I just kept dragging any time he had out of him. Um, but yeah, you do two days and then you'd be left with that work. For a month so you just be like staring at it going okay what's needed so yes there is an argument that it was a very tough but probably valuable way of conducting an edit but obviously no production producer broadcaster in the world would advocate that as an actual working process if you're deeply impractical so you had mentioned that actually a good chunk had to be taken out of this um, and is this what you find would be the norm about um, like kind of, you know, but kind of like things that deal with such big systemic issues in documentary would, would you know, the legal stuff be like, actually. Oh, no, it wasn't that bad. We were very lucky. I'm actually quite glad to have the opportunity to discuss this because we had such a wonderful person working with us in the legal yeah. uh, realm. <laughs> so his name is Andrew Sheridan and he, um, he does some libel work. He does a lot of different kinds of work, but um, he just really committed himself to this film. So I would say he and I watched this film the most. You know, there were like, um, we we would watch a cut of it kind of every few weeks and he would give me some notes and then I would just go and play with them. But, you know, he was quite a creative lawyer, you know. So he even ended up like giving me notes on kind of, content you know like we had like norman's daughter in who's brilliant who's so lovely but you know like i don't know <laughs> i think you're gonna have to like put a bit of time it was, it was very funny anyway he was just he was just a fantastic person to have on our team where you know there'd be stuff that there wasn't really that much stuff that we took out really actually when i when i kind of come to think of it properly it's more that we had to just really justify everything that was there legally speaking um you know like we quote from father farrell's memoir you know for example so you know you have to just back all that up even if you don't see it on screen you have to you just have to be able to support everything that you're saying and doing um but i've had far more trying legal process I'm kind of conscious that it's touch wood but um you know it was quite straightforward in a sense because the participants are there they're on camera and they're they're saying what their experience was what happened to them um so but I anyway I just it's just funny because actually as legal processes go 
I would go as far as to say it was quite enjoyable. I'm kind of conscious now when you're putting words to Andrew's mouth. So <laughs> no. no, that was actually quite tricky and annoying, but I find it very interesting. That's yeah, I suppose it is. It's a tough job and it's like the sound guy's job as well or sound person's job, not inferring gender, Um, that it's like the thing where your job kicks in when there's a problem. So you don't get to yeah. do the fun stuff, like, you know, the creative building the you know finding solutions you're like actually sorry you love that we're gonna have to sort that out or get rid of it you know like it's I know I mean it is sad saying goodbye to things that you really like it's funny we've made a tv cut down as well and I was really dreading that but actually it was amazing I was able to just take huge chunks out um, without a backward glance (laughs) and how was it securing rights and um stuff um, like that especially yeah, on that budget actually is extremely painful um really really frustrating um so the, the i think the most important piece of archive in the film is that nbc footage you know it's where the u.s news channel comes to mind. it's just an incredible thing that happens and they interview the children about the corporal punishments they've experienced and so you know it's absolute gold i'd already you know gotten the okay for the film um before I started I was actually doing an interview the other day with somebody and they were like but why did you just make this a feature this could have been like a multi-part series and possibly it could have been <laughs> and we'd all have been paid and it would have been much better but but anyway we so the archive though you you do you have to pay for something like that you have to pay a lot of money so you know it that took up like a quarter of our budget like it was absolutely crazy how much money oh i didn't pay myself basically that was how this film was made um and i worked every day on it but so it was very expensive but it is uh, it is absolutely brilliant that piece of footage and then we also went to um we put ads up on facebook and ads like posts on facebook looking for families who had lived in Navin during that era and asking if they'd like to donate any video footage because you know any video footage pre-mobile phones is quite rare um so all of it was valuable and precious to us and you know we really loved it um in fairness actually I should mention Screen Ireland gave us an uplift as they call it um where they gave us money to convert the archive. We had bought the archive for festival use and they wanted us to um, convert it to in perpetuity use. So they gave us that when the film was kind of done. But um, that's a bit of a gamble. But most, I suppose for most festival documentaries, it's enough to have it for festival use. Quite a complex subject. I'm happy to discuss yeah. that in more detail another time. Yeah. God, it's so it's so tricky. But I mean, so much kind of like because you give such context, there's so much hinges on it, and it's sort of like that burst of energy as well. Like you do, you're giving like a whole sense of of that era. Like, and some of the some of the footage around the corporal punishment stuff was just it's was just, just heartbreaking. It's, it's so good. See those kids all just go. I was it today. I was it. Like it's just it's amazing and you know there's nothing that I could have written or said that would that would achieve the same effect no and when you see Norman that was a killer that was a killer for me I was like no matter what he says now you know in 60s it is nothing compared to the experience of seeing him as a nine-year-old describe what happened to him 
it's just incredible. It's brilliant. It's amazing piece of footage. And that's it. And in that context of like these vulnerable kids that were just like just trying to get an education, this was the norm. And actually, I think that's one of the most shocking things watching this as a viewer, where they were like, they didn't even question it. They were like, this is just, oh, yeah, you just get beaten to the living base all the time as like as like an innocent young child for like not knowing Irish. I know, like literally his mother said, please beat the other arm. Can you write a note for him to be beaten on the other arm? That was that was what she was hoping for. It wasn't that he would stop being hit. Which is such a low bar, but it's just like, I mean, did you find was was making this difficult? Like, was it difficult to listen to at times or can you kind of divorce yourself? Um, I think actually I sometimes worry about myself. I think I do divorce sometimes, but then it's interesting since I had the baby in August. So I had the baby just a few weeks before it premiered and I really actually found it very hard to watch the premiere, having watched so many edits. But, um, you know, there's that, like, this footage basically of like babies from within mother and baby homes. And, you know, their little tongues were all kind of hanging out of their mouths because they were hungry. And I was so attuned by that point to, I suppose, my own baby being hungry or not. Oh, I just I found it very upsetting um, because obviously that was the reality of thousands and thousands of babies that they were hungry and they weren't being looked after. Uh, anyway, it probably reflects very badly on me, but I'd never really made that connection, you know, between their gesture, their little tongues coming in and out of their mouths before in that way until I sat in the cinema in Toronto watching those. Oh, it's just it was really horrible. I find it very upsetting. And and actually, I find it. I find that when the with the when the babies were being stolen, I found that very upsetting. Like I found it, there's there's I think there's like this visceral feeling where academically you know, oh, that's very sad, and I feel sad for that woman. But there's this bit where you actually just you know you kind of your body feels it for a moment where it's just much more tangible. Yeah. It's funny, a friend of mine was watching the cinema and she was at that piece and then, not to spoil it, but like yeah. the outcome isn't as terrible as you think it's going to be. And she she guessed when it was about to turn and she was like, oh, just thank God, because I can't take this anymore. <laughs> like it just, it's too awful. She too had just had a baby and she was just, I can't take this. Um, so yeah, it's funny. It's, you have to be careful how you introduce the film because, you know, you don't want to be too positive, but you don't want to yeah. be too negative either. You know, it really is a mixture of both. But so so you were kind of like, it, it's very much so sort of almost like text that you're editing that you can kind of, until you see it as a whole then, which probably protects you because it would be so difficult to Yeah, I suppose it. I was just probably, when I was making it, I was so focused on getting it right you know I was um working with a composer George Brennan as well and he you know he's brilliant I'd say I think he found it nightmarish as well to work in it because again you know, he just didn't have enough time or money to pay him properly but um he it kept changing as well the final cut like so he'd give us a perfectly piece finished music and, and I'd be like actually we've added a few more shots to that now which kind of knocks out his structure um but yeah no I've got to say I I was quite 
cold hearted most of that edit. I was so fixated on finishing it. I mean, you know, I was I was pregnant and as I was saying earlier, I was really sick the whole way and I I I know I had no one to work with. I was very alone. Like I just it was it was quite unpleasant. The actual days of working with Enda when I was just with Enda in the edit, they were like the best days. But everything else apart from that was really dreadful. Not as dreadful as being a mother baby home. <laughs> I'm conscious saying this. But as, as production experiences go, like they were just it was extremely arduous and it felt quite hopeless a lot of the time. God. And then what's what's there is so polished and gorgeous. Like there's no sense of that in the final in the final. I know. It's right? like strange it's with that it's because ter- it felt I mean when I look back, it's so embarrassing. Like I sent a rough cut to this festival where it's been before and um we didn't get in and we were like, this is weird. Um and then we looked at the rough cut. There was actually like a giant black hole in the middle of the cut that we'd sent. Like it was so that film was so rough for a really long time. Like it was I don't know how it it looks so much more polished now because it only it really had a very, very short edit by documentary sense. I mean, it, it's actually not really that polished either. Like I was talking to an American sales agent and, you know, he's like, you know, you've really got to work at proper budget next time. And I was like, I, I certainly would like that. And he was saying, you know, you've got to improve the look of these things. <laughs> and I was like, I know, I know, I want to. I and, the, like, I mean, this, the stock footage, like the, the there's such good, kind of pacing I suppose the, maybe he's talking about like the interview setups you know yeah. they look very very DIY which they kind of were you know they I think there's a particular look for those big American documentaries and this certainly is not oh, like that kind of studio like yeah and the person in the middle of the frame and they're like looking down the camera and then there's a second camera like looking over their cheek and nose you know that kind of look um I, I guess that's kind of partly what he was talking about. But I much prefer uh, seeing them in their home and chatting. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like that's a lovely. This film, as I say, I think this film works. Um, but I can also see why for him, it, it seems pretty lo-fi. I think that's what he was getting at. Really. Um, have you thought about um, like future projects? Have you said, okay, like, look, I'm sort of putting this to bed and I want to do something lighter is there is there a team um, that you want to go towards yeah I mean Cause... honestly like it's funny that sales agent just mentioned he was like you have any ideas for famous people any <laughs> and I was like well not really right now but I was thinking the other day I would love like just to you know make not like a fluffy film but just you know just something that was unequivocally celebratory <laughs> this is celebratory too but you know there's quite a lot of nuance to that um so that that would be nice but most of my ideas are a little bit grim or like not not entirely grim but like you know this they're a bit gritty i guess at least um so yeah i'll have to see i'm hoping this this adventure as pleasant and as extraordinary as it's been will conclude in the next sort of few weeks or months at least and um, it'll play sydney film festival next in june and it's got a a digi relate release in, U- in the uk with dogwood on april 19th and it just feels like it is kind of coming to a natural end around 
those events. Um, so, yeah, I think I think this might be the end, and then I will move on. To, I've I've started a few other things too, but they're so, yeah, they're not really the kind of escapist dream that I'm actually going. <laughs> I would much prefer to see something just nice and soft for a little while. And I presume it's the same in documentary where, you know, it's about it's all about securing funding. So it's like what ideas land yeah. with, you know, co-pro or like, Absolutely. you know, like, what... like you really need a few projects in development, really. I have a production company, which I always feel a bit of a fraud saying because it is me, <laughs> the production company. Um, but I have a few projects in development. So, yeah, you're trying to figure or it's not you don't always have much agency, really. Um, It's just you know what is what makes sense i suppose for a co-production or a financier um how much budget you might need these are the things we just talk about incessantly <laughs> much more than just creative things a lot of time and do you like is it is it a case of you'd have to go to like european festivals um with a sales document and a pitch deck and yeah yeah and like and be or be ready to go when this film comes out with like your next five pitch decks in case you're like oh you you have something else yes I have this like do you Uh, kind of have to be prepared for these and uh, then while pregnant yeah Yeah. oh well um I didn't have to do much of that with this film when I was pregnant because it already had its financing through that micro budget scheme and then I just you just sent you just email a link to the festivals um so you don't actually have to go in person to get a film into a film festival. You just you just fill out an application form. But to raise money for a film, yes, you do have to go to markets a lot of the time, or you have to do a lot of Zoom calls. But I, you know, I'm talking about this like I'm really adept at it. I'm really not. <laughs> I just I go to these markets. I don't. I generally don't even get into the markets. Like, but I apply for these markets and then kind of see. I don't know. I'm much better at talking. I I just I'm very this might sound like false modesty it's it's really not I'm just I think I I'm not reassuring to financiers I don't think I don't think they feel very excited talking to me <laughs> really I think interviewees like talking to me but I think the reasons they like talking to me are the same reasons why financiers think I'm very unimpressive <laughs> so I think they just think I'm too small scale I suppose um which is probably true anyway God, I, would, I would say <laughs> yeah, they're like they're like the most turn. <laughs> the most intense um kind of subject matter tackling it on like the again the kind of national scale right down to like that macro level I'm like that's, that's they're big themes tackle I'm like I'm surely they could like translate to like another thing yeah maybe I'm well, let's wait and see. I kind of hate counting chickens before they're hatched. Or, yeah. you know, I, like, in this game, anything can fall through at any time as well. Exactly, and you just never exactly. know. Always, you're like, something is that close to the to, to starting. And then you're like, Rah! I know. I just, honestly, yeah. I just hate the idea of saying, this could be great. <laughs> and it just isn't. <laughs> Well, this well, this was great, and this is hitting national yeah. cinemas on the twenty first of April. I thought it was absolutely fabulous, yeah. really well done. And um, so, thank you so much for making such yeah. a, a lovely film. But um, thank you so much for a beautiful interview. That was so kind. I've never spoken for such less. <laughs> so thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.